Hello and welcome to episode 252 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Harvey, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Scott Sheldon. Today on the podcast, we weigh in on one of the biggest movies of the year and in years, Martin Scorsese's historical crime epic, Killers of the Flower Moon. But first, how are you, Scott? I'm good. You know, we are recording this podcast like a week later than we originally expected. And I'm not going to sit here and say that's a good thing, but it is something to have had an extra week to really digest and process the monumental, epic nature. Uh, you know, no no statement on quality, just sort of monumental, epic film that is Killers of the Flower Moon. Three and a half, you know, much has been made of the three and a half hour runtime. Um it will go as no surprise to say that it has taken me more than three and a half hours to fully digest and, and wrap my head around what the film is doing. And look, I'm excited today to finally be talking about it. Yeah. Um, many people are talking about the runtime, as you say, and, and many of them are just like the movie's too long, which is not a, a, you know, substantive take at all. Well, why is it too long? You know, what, what about the movie? What what would you I think, take? I think the I think the what? number of minutes is the people, reason people will point to for it being too long. Right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. It's just th- there's always going to be annoying discourse when uh, a, a movie like this comes out. Uh, it just seems like a lot of it, in this case, has been uh, surrounding the running time. Which, like, sure. you know, you bought you bought your ticket. You knew what you were getting into. Well, I do think a lot of. I mean, I don't think it's only people who who haven't seen the movie that are saying this, but I do feel like a lot of people who are saying that haven't seen the movie. So, yeah, that's, that's probably also true. And you know what? They're lost, but yeah, Scott, sure. I, um, I, I was, uh, looking forward to this movie for years now. It was my number one, most anticipated last year. Um, when it was, sounds right. Ended up being surprisingly delayed and, you know, we had to wait almost all of this year just to see it. Um, but it's finally here and yes, it, it is worth talking about. And, you know, it's been heartening to see that there's also a lot of good conversation and a lot of good discourse going on about the movie online from what I have seen. Um, even, you know, a couple of weeks now after it's been out, it does feel like, you know, it captured at least the film circles that I follow. And so, um, yeah, mission mission accomplished in that regard. And, you know, the discourse is probably going to continue again, hopefully in a positive light when the movie comes out on Apple TV Plus, because then it's going to get even more eyes on it. Then uh, I think the discussion is going to get worse when it comes out on Apple TV Plus, because then all That's those people true. who are complaining about the runtime are going to see yeah. the movie and then complain about the film being like, oh, can you believe this almost three and a half hours long? Nothing even happens in the movie. I don't think yeah, that's what or... going to say, but. Yeah. yeah, or you know, they're watching it on Apple TV Plus, so they can just you know watch it like their favorite TV series or whatever in one hour uh, installments. I guess that's that's also a distinct. Don't don't, don't you infamously do this for movies though? Don't you watch? Yeah, them in no, I, did, I that that's fair. That's fair. I do, uh, but I just mean that the uh, you know the runtime complaints sure may actually not be as prevalent well. This is the, I mean, this is the whole thing where. Uh... You know, some theaters were going rogue and showing and like showing the film with, with an intermission. intermission yeah. And which Paramount Pictures is like was... Paramount Pictures is like suing those theaters for breaking their contract, which is like kind of crazy. Yeah. Well, as they probably should. And Thelma Schoonmacher also came out and had some uh, 
comments about that she was not pleased that they were doing that unsurprisingly so um, i'm just glad to hear that thelma schumacher at the age of 83 can still have comments about things great to see her still well working. she's still cooking yeah let me let me tell you she's still cooking um scott we're, we're talking about the discourse around again we might as well just get into the film oh, itself. Sure. why not why not uh, our film today as mentioned is killers of the flower moon the 26 feature film from the great martin scorsese Adapted from the nonfiction bestseller by David Grant, Killers of the Flower Moon begins in 1919 when World War I veteran Ernest Burkhart, played by Leonardo DiCaprio, returns from, returns from the war and joins his uncle William King Hale, played by Robert De Niro, and brother Byron, played by Scott Shepard in Oklahoma, where they live on a large reservation ranch among the wealthy Osage tribe. King soon explains to Ernest the scheme by which he makes his money organizing marriages of white men to Osage women, and then having the women murdered so he can collect their wealth and land rights. King asks Ernest to court Molly Kyle, a local Osage woman played by Lily Gladstone, whose family owns oil head rights. Ernest complies and soon his thirst for money leads to the murders of multiple of Molly's family members, as well as other Osage women. The local law enforcement pays little mind to the murders, but the Osage soon mobilize their own efforts to stop the suffering and tragedy, eventually leading to the fledgling FBI become involved, becoming involved with the investigation in the form of Agent Tom White, played by Jesse Plemons. Scott, I'll stop there for fear of spoilers. Does Scorsese's epic saga of greed, violence, and white supremacy put a contemporary spin on a century-old true crime story or is it an overlong, lumbering misfire, undeserving of a spot in Scorsese's decorated oeuvre? Certainly not the latter. I can I can assure all of our listeners that I do not feel that way personally. I, I mean, what a film! I'll start by saying that. Everyone sort of saying that that this film is like I don't know, like a a downer is right. <laughs> I'll say that much. I think there's like it really had me thinking a lot about I'm not going to sit here and say like I've seen most of Scorsese's filmography because I've not I've seen a broad selection of his filmography but I'm not a completionist by any stretch I haven't even I haven't even seen all, all of his like even really famous movies like I haven't seen Casino or Mean Street things like that but of the ones that I have seen I will say this feels even more dour than normal for his like gangster mob type movies of which I think this is one of them. I think it is ultimately safe to say that this is more of a of a gangster mob movie than it is like a Western. Like this film being sold as a Western is like kind of weird to me because th this is Western only in production design, I guess is what I would say. Like it, it is they've done a very amazing job immersing you in post-World War One Oklahoma. Like what a remarkable level of production design from the team responsible for that. But what I will say is that besides that, like it, it kind of does play out like in Scorsese's wheelhouse in the sense that he is crafting this narrative, this very epic grand narrative of something that actually really happened in the real world of this instance of this almost like mob like takeover of this town and the wealth of the Osage nation through these very uh, underhanded is putting it nicely, Scott. I think the way you described it was, was really the way to do it where this sort of systematically marrying Osage women 
murdering them and taking their land and their wealth. The head rights, as I think they're the they're called in the in the film, the rights to the oil, the land, the oil is being um, mined out of. And wow, I mean, three and a half hours where you sort of are just waiting for something good to happen in the movie, and it never comes. And that is, of course, the point of the film because we, the audience, just like the Osage, um, Molly, of course foremost because she is one of the few who manages to survive the borderline genocidal behavior of the white men in this town. And we're waiting for someone to help them and no one ever does. And I think that the, I mean, one of the many accomplishments of this film is rendering that so effectively on the screen where you really feel that you really feel the pain and the sort of hopelessness that the Osage people surely must have felt during this period of time to to have been, you know, displaced from their homeland to be forcibly moved to Oklahoma to then find inadvertently great wealth, a great source of wealth in the oil on their land, and then sort of to be almost more, in, I mean, not even almost more insidiously displaced from that wealth. I think is, you know, to the, paints one of the grand the, pictures of greed that we've probably seen in American history. Yeah, to the point where like the white settlers are literally like controlling the money and like they have to yeah. go like we see multiple times I have to Molly like has to go have a the ex- meeting to like with the executor of her estate. Yeah, basically. to like yeah. see if they will actually distribute some of the funds that she is entitled to to her. Yeah. It's yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy the level of control that they've managed to exert, and they being like the whole society of white people in this town. Of I'm forgetting the actually, I'm actually forgetting the name of the town right now. It's like Gray something, right? I can't remember the name of the town, but it's uh, it's like a, it's like astounding. I think the level of of a like, even though they have all the wealth, the level of oppression that they sort of experience on a daily basis with the lack of control over their own lives and things like that. It's like pretty, it's pretty astounding, I think. And the performances are unbelievable in this movie. I think you kind of, you kind of come to expect it. I think with Scorsese films, especially when Leonardo DiCaprio and or Robert De Niro are in the cast, that the performances are going to be dialed in. And that's exactly what you get. One of those things where I was, I was looking around after the movie and realizing that yes, technically Leo and, and De Niro have been on the screen together before, but not, since Leonardo DiCaprio became Leonardo DiCaprio, but kind of like, I don't want to compare it to heat, but this sort of almost this coming together of two great uh, actors, right? Not necessarily of the same generation, like Al Pacino and Robert De Niro were in heat, but two great muses of Scorsese. I think De Niro has been in like almost probably a dozen, like 10, 10 or more films of Scorsese's and Leo's probably not that many, not as many as De Niro, but up there in number probably as well for his like sort of frequent, you know, lead actors in movies and to see them sort of share the screen almost throughout the whole film was such a treat. I mean, the two of them are unbe- are unbelievable in this movie. I think Leo, <laughs> well, I, you can't discount. Don't, don't look up, I suppose, but on, on a heater for theatrically released <laughs> movies uh, forever. Now it seems like, and De Niro, he, you know, it was interestingly described. I think I was listening to the big picture podcast described as, 
uh, a mixed bag in the 21st century. A lot of paychecks that he's collected uh, as recently as Amsterdam last year, Very I think. Fair, fair to say. Fair, yeah. to say <laughs> fair to say. But something about it, like when he teams up with Scorsese, I mean, we saw it in the Irishman, right? Maybe he's taking a lot of paycheck jobs, but he's keeping his powder dry for the movies that matter to him, I suppose. And the movies that matter to the, you know, the creator, Marty, that maybe he was closest to over the course of his career. And I think you really see that. Maybe he's not, he doesn't have the most to do because his character, William King Hale is like maybe the, the most villainous depiction of like evil that we've seen in movies since Schindler's list. But he is able to register a performance that sells you completely on the sinister nature of King Hale, but also as a representation of like white cult, like white imperialist settling, like settler culture that invades this nation. It's so, it's just so insidious and it's un, it's unbelievable how evil he ends up being almost, but it really did happen that way. And haven't even mentioned Lily Gladstone yet. I mean, so many people talking about this performance and I get it. Like you watch this movie and she's doing something that's obviously very different than the very big performance of William King Hale in terms of how like the register it's at. And then Leo, who I think is sort of famous for giving big, big performances, mostly toned down in this movie. Although he has a couple scenes where he he's able to dial in. You're like, Oh, I'm watching Jordan Belfort. Like you kind of see Jordan Belfort in one or two scenes and he's like, going whole hog at it uh, but he's mostly restrained otherwise so that's a couple scenes but one of the just the, yeah just a remarkable performance of Lily Gladstone the way she's able to say so much without saying with saying while saying very few words I think is the remarkable thing about this performance and so much work that she's able to do just with expressions just with looks uh, just with gazes I think really remarkable to stand side by side next to probably one of the most charismatic actors uh, still working today when Leonardo DiCaprio and it, the ability to hold the screen with him and almost, almost distract you at times from Leo, who, which is something that not many actors are able to do, I think is really impressive. So an incredible central trio of performance performances that sort of it, enliven this I mean, really bummer of a film, to put it very plainly. And nevertheless, it feels like an essential piece of American cinema because of the story that it's telling uh, as, as honestly as it is and as depressingly as it is. And I think there's I've said a lot already, but I think there's so much more to say about this movie that I'm sure we're going to get into. And the technical elements I mentioned, the production design earlier is pretty remarkable. But yeah, I think the direction from I mean, I think I said this. I can't remember if I said this in my letterbox film or if I texted you or told was talking to this guy. I don't know who I said this to. Maybe I told it to all of you. Maybe I did in all these places. I don't know. But when you just start watching this film, I just sort of like immediately was like, holy shit, Martin Scorsese. What a director. It's like literally just like the first couple shots of the film. You're just like, yeah, people just you like, got Robbie oh. Robertson's score just yeah. like pounding in those opening scenes. Yeah, absolutely. And it, it's just one of those things where you're like, we joke all the time, not joke, sorry, like we, we say offhandedly all the time that oh, Martin Scorsese, like one of one of the great filmmakers in the history of cinema. And it's it's just it, it is frankly very easy to just say that 
And then like you sit down and you watch the new Martin Scorsese movie and you're like, oh, my God, Martin Scorsese. Like un- kind of I mean, just like an unbelievable filmmaker. Not to bring back the runtime discourse, but like compare a three and a half hour movie by just about anybody else to this. And you will see like what the difference is. Like he makes it look so easy. Like you just don't feel like yeah. you are watching a, a movie that is a second longer than it needs to be. Right. I'm like this, the movie starts, I'm into the story immediately. And it's like, I'm going to sit here as long as it takes for this story to be resolved. And I really don't care how long that it is. Um, and well, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know if I totally agree with that take. Like, I think that it, I think there are definitely things where I've been like, he didn't need that person. Like personally, I do, I do think okay. that, but I'm not begrudging Marty his, his yeah. choices. And I'm not telling, I'm not saying that what I say he could take out would have made the film better. I just, I don't know if I fully agree with, the film is not a minute longer than it needs to be. I will say that. Fair enough. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I certainly didn't feel it was too long. I didn't. There wasn't really a time when I was like, oh, I want to check my watch right now. Again, I was just like, well, the story's not resolved yet. So I want to see the end of the story. There is no um, resolution. That's part of the problem. Well, yeah, the the end of yeah, I where the movie yeah. Yeah, uh, goes. But yeah, I think Scorsese just kind of dunks on the haters here. Like, you know, I think some of the very dumb and poorly conceived critiques of Scorsese movie, at least in recent Scorsese movies in recent year are like, oh, well, he only makes gangster movies. Well, this isn't really a gangster movie. Um, it kind of is, though. Well, you know, you say it's 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 not really a Western. I don't know. I mean, this movie is certainly wants to say a lot about the role of Westerns, I think, in perpetuating perhaps some of the uh, stereotypes and everything that have led to you know events like this happening and and in particular led to the complacency right and the like just oh this is just you know what happens and we just kind of look past it because you know it's not just the people doing the murders that um scorsese is implicating here like in the closing scenes of the film like the audience is really getting implicated as well as you know and having played a role in this these stories kind of being untold for so long and even Scorsese even implicates himself. It's so interesting to, to watch. And we'll, we'll talk obviously about the, the big scene there, but yeah, you know, I don't think it's really a gangster movie in the way that these other people are talking about. Also, it's like, Oh, he only makes movies about white men. Well, this movie is not just about white men. Certainly this movie is about the pain of the Osage and, you know, the central character maybe not the person with the most screen time but the central character in the story is lily gladstone's uh, molly uh, so you know that's that's not present in this movie either and then you know the other thing which people often say or oh that he glamorizes right this you know violence and and sort of life well there's there's no glamorizing that is going on at any point in this movie right like the murders that are depicted are you know, right up there with the murders, I think, out of David Fincher's Zodiac, right, in terms of, like, the the Bruce coldness and, yeah. yeah, yeah, the, how, just how straight up disturbing they are. Like, you really feel like you're watching real murders. Um, and, 
yeah there, there's at, at no point is Ernest really you know is his evil side really hidden from us and, and certainly not is is king hale's evil side hidden from us like you know from the very first scene we see him um and you know i just think that this just shows the the greatness of of martin scorsese which has obviously been present all this time um but you know, he, like I said, he kind of dunks on the haters here. I think there's there's not a whole lot in terms of those common critiques, if you will, that can be levied at this movie. But, you know, taking the I mean, movie, the whole critique about about only making movies about white men, like what what you want Martin Scorsese to make, like the right, definitive that's the thing, black film. Like, like, I don't even understand that. But I also think this film, yes, it's it's not only about white men, but like I just I think Ernest Ernest is the central character in the film. The told the film is told from his perspective, not Molly's. So not that she's not important and it doesn't play a huge role, but I think I don't think Marty Marty's like trying to shy away from the fact that he's telling like Ernest is, no, is, you're right. is you're the right. protagonist of the film for the lack of a better way to put it. And like it's kind of his soul that's sort of like in question in the film. Like I think like sort of the ultimate like the ultimate thematic question that I take away from the movie is not oh, like, where is the justice for the Osage people? Although that certainly is a secondary question I take away from it. But it's more like, how are we supposed to feel about Ernest? And like, yeah, because I, because there is still the suggestion that even after he's done all, all of this horrible stuff, there's still the suggestion that he he has some sort of love for yeah, Molly, right? 100%. And absolutely. And, what do and we do with that's, that? How do we, how do we square yeah. that and whether that's right or wrong because that is like i mean to my understanding that's like purely a scorsese invention for, yeah. for the film and that is not something that is like played out in the david grand novel that the film is based on but it's certainly something that marty's interested in and i think that ultimately it becomes a film about because of that it becomes a film about white men but i, I don't think that's an issue like i just like don't even see that i'm like yeah the all of his movies, for the most part, are about white men. Maybe there's a couple about women, but like, what, like, what stories do you want him to tell? Like, yeah. like, I, I mean, don't know what people want. Right, and there's this video that's been going around of one of the Osage language consultants on the movie, yeah. Um, talking yeah, about yeah, how, that, yeah. right, yeah, talking about how you know he appreciates, he thinks Scorsese did, you know, a very commendable job with the film, but um, that portraying Ernest is having any sort of love redeeming, redeeming quality being, being yeah. having any sort of capacity for love is perhaps doing a disservice to the the osage people yeah. and and he might be right like, yeah he might be right he might be he he yeah. absolutely might be um it does feel like though you know if you're talking about a white man making this movie and sure we'll say a white man is the central character this is probably about the best version that you could make um that is yeah i mean i mean like oppenheimer right i mean i know that this is not this isn't a conversation we can necessarily have but like i thought a lot about oppenheimer while watching this movie like two of our great living filmmakers making movies that are like ultimately critical of their protagonists obviously Ernest is uh deeply disturbed and evil i think ultimately is an evil person I think that's pretty safe to say. Yes, but hundred percent. But I, I think like Oppenheimer, like Oppenheimer is like different. I think the perspective is just more mixed, right? But like the 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 thrusts of these films is like questioning, like the inherent 
goodness of the things that they've done. Obviously, it's maybe an easier answer for someone like Ernest, but these filmmakers being concerned with sort of like the the morality or the capacity of their of their main characters for certain things is like it's it's a fascinating year in cinema. Yeah, absolutely. And um, like I was saying, I, I do think it's probably the, the best version you could get. And it's a damn good version because it's just an incredible film. Um, you know, it is one of those epics, like I say, like I was kind of saying, that you feel like you could just keep watching. Sure. Um, you just get so sucked in. Like, it, you know, I know this is high praise, but it does feel like the same thing to me as watching like a Lawrence of Arabia or something, right? Like where you're just you're just in the middle of it. You're just in it the whole time. And um, again, the the runtime doesn't feel necessarily like the runtime. It's just like you could you, you could genuinely feel like you could just sit here and, and just keep watching it. Um, and I think only really, really brilliant, you know, re the really only the a very elite teal, tier of filmmakers and storytellers can pull off that that tough feet so you know all credit to scorsese in that regard i think the performances are phenomenal as well the three central performances specifically and lily gladstone yeah um huge moment for her you know she broke out to some extent with certain women the kelly reichert movie which she is very very good in and scorsese has basically said that he saw her in that and that um was his inspiration to cast her um in killers of the flower moon um but didn't really do much between those two films um, and, and certain women is now five, six, seven years old. Um, and, but now, you know, she has several movies actually that's come out this year. And obviously this is the most high profile generating the Oscar buzz. She's a tremendous actress. Like you say, she's doing um, something different from the male performers. And there's so much that she's wearing on her, her face. And, you know, just there's, you know, she's she's having to bear the weight of so much of the Osage's pain throughout this movie, but without being able to say anything or, you know, be extremely demonstrative about it, which makes the moments where she actually is demonstrative about it like that much more powerful. Like there's a yeah, scene totally. where she cries out in the stairwell that is one of like the most devastating scenes that i've seen in a long time just like the the sound of that cry is something that like just burrows into your soul honestly um yeah 100%. because there's so much pain in that um when she realizes that another one of her sisters has now been killed um this is after the house has been blown up of her sister rita um so she is tremendous in the film. DiCaprio is fantastic. De Niro, yes. I mean, he still got it. If there was any doubt after, you know, something like Amsterdam, whether De Niro still has it, he absolutely does. And his character, more than anything, feels like, I talk about this movie in the intro, like putting, does it put a contemporary spin on all this? And I think his character is certainly a, a way that it does, because I feel like this person, this type of person who has like this, you know, veneer of like, oh, I'm helping you, right? Like he 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 tries to be this benefactor for the, um, you know, Osage people. He's giving them all this money. He's like presenting as oh, he's he's responding to their needs, but you know, the underbelly is you know couldn't be further from from that, right? Like he's literally conspiring to have these people murdered, and you know, not just there's, conspiring. There's, he's like he's like the guy. Like he is the yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's he the, the guy pulling yeah. the strings to get all these people killed because Ernest is not smart enough to do it. Like, that's I mean, very he's, clear. yeah, 
yeah i mean i want to talk about about that when we start talking about dicaprio yeah. but yeah 100 percent, i agree but yeah um he is the mastermind behind all of this and you know it, there's there seems to be no regard for how many how many bodies it's going to take right like it's just that that's that's one of the things that really just stands out to me in watching the movie it's just like they don't there's they don't stop at anything it's like well now there's this other loose end which means we have to get rid of this person like we have to get rid of bill smith or i have to get rid of jason isbell's character because he's asking too many questions and then you know we have to get rid, get rid of, of blackie okay. yeah we have to get rid of blackie because he knows too much we have he's to get the rid dumbest of criminal on planet earth right <laughs> and you know it's it's they're just all expendable basically um in the eyes of including uh, ernest yeah. including ernest yeah yeah 100 uh, Right. He's he will stop at nothing to to collect more wealth and, and earnest too. I mean, I love money is something that he says very early on in this movie, but and that's mm -hmm. kind of his driving force philosophy throughout this whole thing. But Scott, as far as general impressions, that probably um is enough to be said. Moving on to the performances, um, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio. Robert De Niro, Lily Gladstone are really the ones worth talking about here. Sure. Um, single out whoever you want to, or all three of them. And, um, you know, if you want to delve into talking about their specific characters too. Go yeah, right happy to. I mean, I, I feel like I like Ernest just, just because I think ultimately he is the, the lead of the film. One way or another, I'm not even talking about cat category for awards or anything. It just feels like he is the center of the film. The film starts with him, the film more or less also ends with him. I know it's more of like a coda at the end of the movie and how it ends doesn't really end with any specific character, but uh, Leo, well, I'll pause there. I'll pause for a second actually and, and back up. I remember when we were talking about this film, and I don't know if you remember this, Scott, but there was a point in the reporting on this movie where there, there was some change in the casting yeah. of characters where originally Leo, who was, who was the lead of the movie at the time was playing Tom White. Tom playing White, the character the Jesse, Jesse Plemons, Plemons ultimately ended up playing. And I assume then Jesse Plemons, I don't know if they real swapped or what it was, but then like Jesse Plemons was playing Ernest or I don't know what, but DiCaprio swapped into playing the role of Ernest and it was implied that he would no longer be the lead of the movie. And having done my homework on this, because I was so curious about this after seeing the movie, because I'm like, well, Leo is the lead of the movie still and he is playing Ernest. And to discover then that the original draft of the script played much more like a police procedural type, like whodunit mystery film where the Bureau of Investigation, Tom White, Leo's character, like would have been Leo's character, was trying to solve who was committing all these murders of the Osage people. And then to, to learn that the, the actual like thrust of the film changed so dramatically like not not once the filming had started, but like pretty close to when production would have been starting and the rewrite of the script happened to reorient the entire film in a different way, making it more of a crime type film, making it more of that sort of mobster type movie that I was talking about where you have King Hale and Ernest, um, er Ernest Burkhart being sort of the central figures and the film very openly making it clear from the earliest scenes in the movie that these people are killing the Osage. I found that to be such an interesting 
arc of the film. And part of that was learning that David Grant's novel, his nonfiction novel, um, is sort of more like a holistic telling of the Bureau of Investigation, along with some of the story on the Osage with Molly and her family. But to then have like sort of the inspiration to twist that into this sort of almost like morality tale of, of genocide and what, how far people are willing to go for this concept of money and wealth and power. And I found that to be pretty inspired. Obviously Leo is, is at the center of that as sort of the changing, like changing from the role of the good, the good guy, you know, the good guy of the Bureau of Investigation. Maybe we can talk later on about how much of a good guy those guys really are. The answer is to an extent, certainly Uh, they're not like they're evil people, but are they doing as much good as, maybe they would like to think that they are doing, I think is, is a question or a sour taste. The film will leave you will leave in your mouth. But the fact that it turn, like, it sounds like maybe Leo made this, made this specific suggestion to Marty and like reframing the story and that he would play Ernest is like pretty remarkable because Ernest is like, I mean, I know Leo's done this before. You think like Django Unchained or, or any, you know, any of his other smattering of Scorsese films where he's like playing, like not a good guy. But like, I can't really imagine too many other like movie stars, A-listers who would play a role like Ernest, not because he's an evil dude, of which he certainly is, but because, man, Ernest is a dumbass. Like he is a dumbass. He is, frankly, Leo still delivers a level of charisma that I think really makes the character work, but like not a good looking dude. And... I just can't imagine, like, name any male A-list actor, Scott. Can you imagine them doing that well, role? No, Brad I mean Pitt, it, George Clooney, Tom Cruise. Almost, like, no you know, way. and I was saying that I was saying the same thing during Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, even right. Like, you know, the the scenes like he has in the trailer where he's like, like you know, crying or whatever, yeah, yeah, screaming yeah. and cussing at himself and all that. I was at the time, I was like, who else would would do this? Like, do this sort of vulnerability, but him. And this is just taking it to a whole new level. Yeah, I mean, th- this is sort of taking that absolutely to eleven. I totally agree, and that's what I think I find so compelling about the performance. I, it's not going to be Leo's great performance, your greatest performance for me. I, I do think some of no. his more recent outings, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, um, Wolf of yes. Wall Street. I, I think that there there's others that are going to top that list for me, but I find it so impressive that an actor like him wants to do so like wants to do a part like that. And it's and literally like he, it seems like he pushed the narrative of the film to be around that role. And then he's like, I'm going to change and play that role for you. And I just find that to be like really interesting for him as an actor. And also as someone who, you know, he is my favorite, favorite actor working and, and to have that, per- like to have him sort of be involved in that way and, and seeking out those kind of roles is awesome because most actors just aren't going to do that. Most actors of his stature just aren't going to be playing those kind of roles. And that's what makes it fascinating for me. I think the performance is, is astounding. Like I said, I think it's a really strong one because he plays this sort of like bumbling, manipulated fool so effectively. This person who like still has a lot of charisma and like is able to flash his weird smile with his like messed up teeth and make you feel something make you feel like just comfortable enough with his sort of like very i don't know like almost benign sounding accent like he has this drawl in his accent that 
I think sort of it is a little bit disarming and you can kind of understand the sort of level of safety and security that someone like Ernest played by Leo would provide a person like Molly. There is a charm and charisma there, even though I don't think he's like an attractive person and something about that dynamic of like not attractive, but, but also charismatic, like really makes this character work. And when you, you layer on this notion of like, he's an idiot, like he's a complete idiot who is totally manipulated by his uncle and Leo throughout the whole runtime of the film makes that character feel super believable. Now, whether you go back and say the like humanization of Ernest as a character, you know, f throw out whether or not it's true or not, like who, who I'm not really interested in that, but just in the context of the film, the whole quote that you were saying from the language consultant around like it being a disservice that that might be true. And I don't mean I, I don't have an opinion too strongly about that, but I think ultimately what is what we are given and what Leo is given to work with is like pretty meaty material. And I think as usual with you, what you'd expect with Leo, he totally delivers for me. I mean, I think it's a really outstanding performance. Yeah, no, I was going to say a lot of similar things. You know, the vulnerability um, that he shows in this role is is pretty astonishing. You know, again, not something that many other male movie stars, if any, yeah. would take on. I think that makes him such a essential performer still, even after all these years, um, for what he's willing to do, the links that he's still willing to go to on screen when he could easily just rest on his laurels with what he's achieved in his career thus far. Um, and yeah, I mean, I've talked a little bit about the other performances, but I think that the other two leads match him. Um, you know, De Niro just oozing, like he, he's using his charisma too. Like they, they are weaponizing both, both of their charisma, right. To an extent, even though King Hale tells you in his first scene, like exactly what he's doing. You know, as a viewer, I was like so dumbfounded Jarred, by that, yeah. where I was like, this dude sounds pretty bad. What he's saying right here doesn't sound very good. Yeah, like, but I was like, didn't, really? What he's but saying? I didn't yeah. fully believe that that it was going to go that direction because I'm just like, I don't expect this movie to tell me in minute five that this guy is the devil and that he is the devil. Yeah. But yes, he, in fact, is the devil in the in the movie. Like he is he is the bad guy. He is. Big bad, big bad yeah. King Hale. And that, that that's one of the sort of the real remarkable elements of the film is that there's no hiding the eight ball and De Niro from, you know, the first time you see him on the screen, he's unabashedly playing the bad guy. And it's hard to not, it's hard to take your eyes off of him when he's doing that. Yeah. Yeah. Again, it's, it's weaponizing that charisma big time that he has and uh, doing so for great success. And, yeah, like I said, this sort of snake oil salesman character, I think, is somebody that we see still in today's day and age, you know, uh, not to not to be obvious about it, but in politics and, and things like that. I think people like this very much still exist nowadays. Maybe it's not, you know, murders going on, but, you know, equally um, unsavory activity. It very well could be very well could be. Yeah, and then, of course, you have Lily Gladstone as well. You know, I've already mentioned some of the things I liked about her performance, but it is, you know, it's definitely a counterpoint to the others. It's more of a, you know, facial expression performance 
body language, you know, all of that nonverbal performance because her character like literally is nonverbal seemingly for, for, you know, a, a portion of the movie for the latter portion of the movie due to her, you know, diabetes um, accelerating. And then of course what Ernest is doing to her with the injection. So she has to convey a lot through her facial expressions and body language and all of that. And she does a tremendous job of, of doing that, whether again, it's in these early segments and she's sort of, you know, embodying the pain of all of the Osage people or, you know, whether it's later on when it's the suspicion that she has for, you know, what her husband might be up to. And ultimately, you know, that final scene that they have together, it's kind of just the resignment as to, you know, what the situation is and, and the fact that she, you know, has spent her whole life with this person and he can't even, um, you know, t tell her the truth what she knows to be true there in this final moment, right? Because even still, even after he has confessed to so much on the witness stand and, you know, a lot of his role in the murders and everything, he still lies to her about, you know, what he was doing with the injections. And um, so I think she's tremendous. Well, I think what's, so, what's interesting about that too is that like, it's almost like willful ignorance because like obviously he has these deep suspicions, <laughs> yeah. he even injects it into himself. Like he takes, I shouldn't, he doesn't inject it himself. He like pours it into his drink or whatever mm -hmm. in one scene. But he just sort of refute. I mean, this is, this is the whole nature of the earnest character, right? Like part of it's that he's dumb, but part of it is because he wants to, he doesn't want to face the truth for himself, you know? And I think part of yeah. that, I, I'd be curious if his position would be like, I'm not lying. I don't, I don't think there was anything in it because I chose not to think about it because those intrusive thoughts in my head, I, I reject them. I push them out. Yeah. And at the end of the day, you know, at least he still feels like he has, you know, love for her and that that is more important, I suppose, than any of this other stuff he may have done. Um, and so that's, I think that's part of it too, but you're right. The sort of denial is definitely a huge part of what the character is about. Um, but yeah, all three performances, amazing. Like, you know, it would be enough to just have one heavyweight performance in a film like this, but he's got three and three very different characters. Um, and, you know, you could you could very easily see all of them in, in the Oscar race. You Potentially. Know, I don't know if they're coming like nominated, but yeah. Which is a shame because, you know, I feel like there is always like one performance in a movie like this that gets overlooked, one of the main performances. And maybe that's going to be his, but I think... He's on the same level as the other two, probably, um, for my money. But sure, um, Scott, you know, we've talked a little bit about the fact that there's this Tom White FBI character as well um, who gets involved in the third act of the movie played by Jesse Plemons. I want to kind of ask what you thought about just the turn that the movie takes at that point and what his character brings Um to to the story because you know the the first two thirds is really seeing all of the plot play out um the the plan that king hale has and again we've talked about how it just sort of keeps spiraling and snowballing and you know they're just bouncing from one person to another and loose ends are popping up and they have to get rid of this person and they have to hire this person to kill this person and then you know um you know, yeah, I mean, you kind of realize kinda just that the, they're, they're not very good at what they're doing. They're not yeah. very good gangsters at the end of the day. It's the they're procedure. Enough, but 
it's the procedure of all of it that you kind of see. And then, you know, Jesse Plemons gets involved. The FBI finally does something right. This is after, you know, multiple times of people, including Well, Molly the FBI herself. didn't exist, right? This is the whole thing. The Bureau of right, Investigation, yeah. which wasn't even technically, which then became the FBI later on, was sort of created for, I mean, this is like one of the first the first cases, yeah. in quotation marks, that they... But the, fe- the federal government getting involved for the first time when, you know, again, we see like people going to Washington, members of the Osage tribe, including Molly herself, and like literally telling President Calvin Coolidge what is going on. Um, yep. And to no avail. Finally, the FBI, you know, the new FBI, the fledgling FBI shows up and because the criminals are so bad, it doesn't really take them very long to like figure out what's actually happened. Um, And, you know, we have this trial sequence um, with John Lithgow um, and Brendan Fraser playing the attorneys. Um, Ernest flip-flops a few times. He eventually ends up um, confessing to his role in the murders Mm -hmm. um, in exchange for some, you know, immunity, essentially. Um, he's still went to jail, but yeah. Yes, but uh, in exchange, sorry, not immunity, but a lesser sentence, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets a, a reward for that. But anyway, what did you think about the shift that the movie takes in the third act when it becomes more about, you know, the investigation, the trial, and Ernest reckoning with um, his sins and what that mean for everyone in this place including his own family like again there we learned that um one of his children has died when he's Anna, there in yeah. jail um yeah yeah pretty what, pretty what do you think about this yeah absolutely yeah look i think that the final act of the film is one that i really feel like i'm still sort of parsing out and could benefit significantly on a rewatch my initial instinct is that the most compelling parts unsurprisingly maybe of the third act are the ones where the narrative thread of Ernest wrestling with all these things that are happening or what he's done up to that point, like that stuff and his relationship with Molly are the two most compelling parts of the third act, because I didn't find the procedural element and the, the, you know, the courtroom drama sequence that that sort of, I found them frankly, like a little bit, half baked i do think that's like a little bit the point it doesn't necessarily make it better but when tom white shows up going back to some of the stuff we were talking about earlier it's sort of anticlimactic in a a way like there obviously it pushes things forward because then you see hale and Ernest start spinning out and trying to tie off loose ends recklessly even right before that, right, you have people in the town talking, like telling King Hale to be like, you're showing your hand too much. Like you're making it too obvious what you're doing. You got to this is like the head like that person is like a, marching with a KKK is like telling him like, bro, yeah. you're like too obvious right now what you're doing. I'm like, but he thinks, you know, KKK. He <laughs> thinks he's got about? everyone, everyone in his pocket, including the Osage themselves. Right. Like Correct. literally yeah. he, he refuses to accept in the end that the Osage are going to like turn on him. Yeah turn on him yeah, yeah. The, he thinks that oh look at what all i've done and yeah it's super, not to it's mention, super demented yeah 100 percent. not to mention that he's you know 
got everyone else in the town sort of under his, you know, thrall. Yeah. Yeah. His, his web, like the medical examiners, the brothers and stuff like that. The doctors, you know, the local yeah, yeah. law enforcement, everybody. Yeah. T is totally. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, th that sort of hubris comes to bear and you, and unsurprisingly when third party independent investigators who they can't murder, in town which is what happened with all the other people that they sort of brought yeah. in before whether it's the private investigator that the osh hired or whether it was the person in town who they sent originally sent to go talk to coolidge they just murdered those people and act like you know like they just disappeared and took people's money and when you realize that oh we can't do that to these federal government investigators the landscape shifts very quickly and you can see king start to really tie up try to quit very quickly tie off all those loose ends including Ernest. seems like he's about to set Ernest up for the kill and that's when they of course they both get arrested i i there's like something compelling about that piece because again there are like there is justice served in the sense of them being arrested but as the damage the film, is already done the damage is done and as the film points out at the like in the sort of denouement the last scene it, we'll get to that yeah. yeah yeah but i'm just saying like it, it all feels anticlimactic because justice isn't really served right yeah. and so when you go through when you look back at or when i look back at the third act of the film and i say you know the plot is moving forward and there's sort of emotional confrontations do happen and those are the compelling parts of the third act but the actual procedural element is underwhelming. Like it is at least on the detective side, right? Like it does, you're not seeing a, a bunch of detective work. There's like basically just a few scenes where Jesse Plemons is like interviewing Hale or interviewing Ernest or interviewing X, Y, Z person and then arresting them. And then the courtroom scenes are like way over the top for me. They didn't like fully work. If I'm being honest, I mean, I know it's like easy to just like joke about Brendan Fraser, like exploding or whatever his first line mm. is just like him going going to like 21 and not just 11 mm. but 21 um and delivering something crazy and i think that that i think that is a fair criticism it just feels like all of a sudden we're in a different movie if that makes sense it's like it becomes very theatrical all of a sudden and i don't really understand why because there's still a jury of people who include kkk members like it's not yeah. like they've been taken to some federal court where like real justice is going to get served. You're looking around and it's all the same people who were in on it the whole time who are sitting well, on the jury. Yeah. Maybe that's the idea that all of this is just very performative, right? Including like the attorneys themselves or whatever. Like it's where the anyone... defense attorney is like so theatrical yeah. though. Yeah. I don't know. But anyway, like that, that stuff didn't totally work for me, but I do find the emotional moments between Ernest and Molly very effective and the scene at anna's grave which is the scene you were talking about earlier when yes. she asks him what was in the medicate like what were in the what was in the injections what did you what did you give me like that's just a i mean that is that is that's it that's the scene you know that's the sort of natural end point of the film when you're talking about the trajectory of Ernest and and his relationship with with molly which is you know the more or less the thrust of the film and it's brutal yeah 
Yeah, I, I do think in the courtroom scenes there there's a moment where Ernest is testifying um, and John Lithgow is sort of cross-examining him, I suppose, or I think he's he's it's his witness. right? He's so. directing him. Yeah, yeah I yeah, guess. Yeah. But he is going through sort of all of the different people that have been killed. Right. Yep. Uh, and in particular, the family members of yeah. Molly, Minnie, and Rita, Anna. Yeah, it's yeah. just a a long take on Ernest's face as this yep. is being read, and you know, again, the acting that DiCaprio does there is arguably his best moment in the movie because that that finally, you know, after three hours, finally he seems to like. He starts to register what exactly he's, exactly he's, he, part what of, he's yeah. done. Yeah, because he hasn't up until that point. You know, part of it is he's dumb, and then you know another part of it is just it's just so normalized. It's so everyone is just accepts it for the most part. Yeah, it certainly it. is like very encouraged to like not think too deeply about it because everyone yeah. is doing it and everyone is telling him he should be doing it. Well, not maybe not everyone, but but King is telling him he should be doing it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and. You know, it just spirals and spirals. And it's like, well, this is just the next thing I have to do. Like, this is just what I have to do. Yeah. Um, is kind of how he views it. But yeah, it all comes crashing down in that moment. But like you say, it's far too late. So I do think that moment deserves some recognition because I think he's an incredible in that one moment in particular. Mm -hmm. um, with just, again, what's on his face as the reality starts, starts pouring in. But yeah. Scott, I do want to talk about, you know, the scene that you're alluding to here, which is kind of the big scene, perhaps at the end of this movie, um, maybe the most talked about scene, which is um, after the, the resolution of the trial, um, we sort of cut to the soundstage uh, or it's like a live radio. It's a live radio show. Yeah. What yeah. it's meant to be. Um, and this is the point in the film where we would normally get the, you know, the title card sort of on screen explaining what happened to everyone after the, you know, the events of the film. And instead of getting that, we have, again, the sort of live pantomime performance of, um, you know, what th that, that sort of thing with Jack White uh, and, and some other people on stage sort of reading out the details of what happened to these people. Um, and finally, at the at the conclusion of this scene, Martin Scorsese himself appears and reads Molly's obituary, um, which ends with, you know, the line. Well, w w the obituary doesn't end with the line, but he ends with the line saying, you know, the, the murders were never mentioned, essentially, mm -hmm. in the, the yep. obituary. So, um, so much going on, I think, in this scene. Um that it was it was surprising like I, I did not expect to see this scene in the movie i did not expect scorsese himself to appear obviously um a lot you know going on as far as talking about the way that these stories can go so hidden for over a hundred years right and the complacency that it takes on behalf not just you know again it's not just the people who are actively involved in this but it's also to some extent the people who are passively um you know looking the other way or passively endorsing these sort of attitudes um whether it be in like you know western films or, or something like that um 
so so that's part of it but like like you say scott you know i don't think that martin scorsese and, and when i saw the scene i was like oh great everybody's going to be saying like oh well he's just patting himself on the back for being the guy who finally told this story but i i don't think that's what he's doing at all again i think there's a lot of self-reflection going on for him as well in this moment um and the types of stories that he's chosen to tell perhaps in his films over the years. I think that he is interrogating that perhaps in this moment, but there is just sort of a nihilistic um, slant to it because as you say, it's like, well, sure, we're telling the story now, but why couldn't we have told the story at the time, right? Like, you know, maybe it's nice that everyone, you know, who sees this movie is probably gonna go look up the Osage and, you know, be horrified and you know hope that this sort of thing never happens again but telling stories can only accomplish so much um you know when when it's been 100 years since this event has taken place um and then there's you know stuff about true crime if you want to go down that road because there are a lot of people who are you know sort of relating this scene to our contemporary fascination with true crime and whether or not that's ethical or not. Scott, your thoughts on this whole scene and in particular, this moment of Scorsese with Scorsese himself. Yeah. I'll, I'll, this is another one of those parts of the third act that I really want to see again on a second watch because my, I'll be honest, my instant reaction to it was that it was sort of like, didn't quite basically trying to do what Spielberg did with Schindler's list and didn't quite work as well for me. But I would love to revisit that and reevaluate whether I think that's like the right thing to have been thinking about when I was watching the final scene. It just sort of naturally like, like fourth wall breaking, you see the, you know, the director come on the screen and it's supposed to be this moment of not catharsis, but like sort of for Spielberg, obviously in Schindler's list, it's a moment of catharsis as all these, uh, you know, Holocaust survivors, go to the grave the grave site outside i don't think i don't know i can't remember if it's auschwitz or if it's a different a different concentration camp um in schindler's list i can't remember off the top of my head but it kind of felt like they were trying to do that with this radio show followed by the overhead shot of a modern day osage tribal dance like celebrating culture and not not that it is a reasonable bar to compare it to but that didn't quite hit me as hard as Schindler's list ending did and nothing nothing in the history of film has ever hit me sure yeah but like unfortunately that's (laughs) that is what I was thinking about at the end of the movie and and so not that it it didn't it certainly did not leave a sour taste in my mouth but I've just been trying to make sense of that in my head with the sort of like this is not what I expected to see as the final moments of the movie kind of to your to I think you said that earlier as well but in addition like it seems like it's Scorsese's version of that. And I'm not sure it was as good <laughs> as that. So why try to replicate it? But I think I'm like over, I think I just might be overreading that a little bit. So it didn't like, I don't think it had the intended effect on me. It is clearly, I mean, I should say clearly, it is a very interesting way to coda the movie out. And obviously it, in in some manner of, of respect, it might be hammering the point home quite a little bit on the nose about the points that you're making, but it doesn't necessarily feel unearned at the same time either to, to have that very unsatisfactory conclusion, unsatisfactory in the sense that like, we have not done enough, not that the film was unsatisfactory. 
but like we have not done enough for the wrongs that were committed a hundred years ago. And I'm not sure what to make of that, but I feel a bit mixed on the person, the ending having a personal impact on me, which I think it was obviously trying to try. It's obviously trying to have a very personal impact on people. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I think it's just responding to the idea that during this whole movie, well, most people will probably be sitting there like, how did this happen? Right. Like how could this have ever happened in, um, in our history? And um, you know, the answer is because everyone sort of played a role in it again, not just the, the people like Ernest and King Hale. Um, Got some bad news. A hundred years from now, we're going to be asking, there's going to be people asking themselves, how did that happen in 2020 yeah. or whatever? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's, and that's the sobering thing that you have to leave the movie with again. It's, it's by no means a, we're doing it now, right? We're telling the story and we're making it right. No, there's, there's no making it right. Right. Like just, just the simple detail of like all of Molly's, family members names that were killed getting read off in the obituary is like enough to just weigh very heavily on you about what's happened. Absolutely. So I thought I, I found it powerful. Yes. It, it's not on the level of something like Schindler's list, but um, I, re I recognize was, the, <clears throat> yeah. you know, the unrealistic comparison that creates, but sure. I couldn't help like that's all, that's all I was thinking about when I was watching the scene. So it's sure. hard not to, okay. not to say, but that. obviously compared to the typical historical, you know right film. right we have just like tech card of text or whatever yeah yeah this was a much more interesting and thought-provoking way to you know sure. cement home some of the points that he was making over yeah. the course with the final image being like you know what what endures of the osage after the atrocities that yeah. were committed what i mean what exactly. frankly what little still is able to endure because of the systematic killing of their of their people yeah, it's almost like the again the reverse of Schindler's List, where where Schindler's is showing you here's all the generations that are allowed yeah, the, the to prosper yeah. because yeah. of of Schindler's actions now. But but you know uh, juxtaposing that with with this movie, which is like here's what's left, which is yeah. not really a whole lot. Um, That's a good point. Yeah, uh, Scott, there's obviously so much more we could probably talk about with the movie. Um, no doubt. Yeah, other areas that you want to go to that we haven't discussed perhaps in such a long movie and so much um so many different threads um yeah i don't know if there's like anything that to dive really more deep into in, in this context i mean it's such an epic i mean i know we said this at the beginning it's such an epic film we kind of glossed over the grisly murders that you see in the first half of the sure. film but Again, like all of this sort of it's not a who done it, right? It's not it's not a mystery. No. Right? Maybe like there's specific details that are mysteries in in some respect, but a lot of the crime that's being committed is very open. It's not like your typical film might portray it. But there's just something like really deeply disturbing about not just the manner in which you see the murders happen, but everything sort of almost like orbiting it as well. Right. Like even like the funerals, the, the household of Ernest and Molly, where you have like the mother. I mean, that's actually one thing. I don't know if this was going to be your favorite scene or moment. It's not going to be for me, the but like owl. The, sure. The owl actually is the scene where she finally 
Lizzie, which is Molly's mom, finally passes away, like the scene where she gets up off the off the bed or like lounge that mm-hmm. she's in and gets up and walks off kind of peacefully into the afterlife. Like I thought that was like a really moving scene it's like tonally sometimes it's I don't mean this in I I don't mean this in a negative way but tonally it sort of swings and covers a lot of ground the film in this first half because in a lot of respects especially earlier on like first 45 minutes when Leo and is like courting like Ernest is courting Molly it's like kind of a rollicking very Scorsese like frenetic movie and that slows down a lot when the sort of insidious nature of what's happening takes center stage. And then you see all these murders. Like you saw, you see murders from the very beginning of the movie, but then you see more and more and more murders happening and more sinister plots and stuff like that. And I, and I, and I, you find it's very um, concussive almost like with the experience of seeing all of these murders happen and seeing just the lack of impetus to do anything. Right. Like the even King, which is like obviously retrospectively an incredibly dark thing to do, but he's like promising like a thousand dollars or whatever for evidence that leads to the apprehension of the person who murdered. I think it was Anna, uh, the one who was shot in the head by Byron. Mm -hmm. And you're just sitting there and you're like. Like, whoa, like you're 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 you did it. you know exactly who did it and you know you're you're putting on this show and it the extended time with which the movie takes to utterly drain me like me or you as a viewer of all hope that anything good could come of it makes then the third act like all the more compelling because there is certainly some good that comes of it the fbi do arrest Ernest and King and, and a few others, but it's not satisfying. Like you said, it doesn't bring anybody back and it didn't even put them in jail for very long. They got life sentences, but they were paroled early. Yeah. And, you know, Molly is able to live for a number of years longer, but she still died at 50 of diabetes. And, you know, it's just, it's a it's a really interestingly constructed tale that covers both like sort of like the really brutally disturbing grisly murders. But then there's also some element of comedy that's happening at the same time. I mean, the stuff that's happening with like between Ernest and Blackie and that other guy who he hires to kill. Yeah. The, um, to kill King's like house. I don't even know like what to describe him like handyman. I'm not even quite sure how to describe uh-huh. the the Osage person that that hailed. There's just like so many different plots, obviously, in a three and a half hour film or subplots to cover. It's hard to really go too many places. I mean, we didn't really talk about Byron at all. What did you think of Byron as a character? Because he I mean, one of the things about the last scene in the movie is that you find out he was never even convicted because he because of a hung jury. He was never even convicted of anything. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, he he's kind of just like the the sidekick in all of this, but like he, but like the smart know, side, like not the idiot yeah. sidekick. Like yeah. he 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 is in in many ways. I think you can see him as King's like right hand man. Um, you know, more so than Ernest is, I think, because I think he's pulling strings too, but he's actually also out getting his hands dirty and you know 
the way that King murdering Anna is not. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't even actually see that murder take place. I don't believe. I think they just drive off and then we see her body. Um, no, we, but... no, they show, they show you hit them shooting her in the head okay. in the, in the, yeah. in the last act. I guess of the movie. I forgot Not that. when it's happening. They don't, they don't. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but yeah. Later in the, tri- I think in yeah. the trial or something, they show, they yeah. show, is it Byron and the guy? He has like multiple names because he's like, he like changed his name or whatever, but they, they arrested him and he was test. He's testifying, and that's when they show you yeah, what okay. happens. That, yeah, that sure. he shoots her, and that they hold her body up because she's like passed out, drunk, and they and she sh- he shoots her in the head. Which is, yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, it's it's grisly. The level of just yeah, cold blooded murder that's all, happening is unbelievable. They're all horrifying, but you know, they're just portrayed with just like this ho hum, you know, sort of treatment. It's just like it's just very matter of fact. It's like it just happens. Like they're. There's no like suspense. There's no build up or anything. It's just like, yeah, matter of fact, as you say, which is, yeah. you know, again, that's there's a point to all that, which is, you know, rounded home in that scene I was talking about in the end with, you know, the, these types of things just get glossed over the, yeah. despite how horrible they were and how what long lasting, you know effects that they have for the osh people we didn't talk too much about the supporting cast scott which you know there's maybe there's, there's so many a lot of I mean, people to so call many people yeah right there but you know in terms of standouts i did just want to to mention jason isbell because you know yeah, this was something i was interested in in the movie you know country singer don't think he's really acted in anything before i'm, no, I'm a big fan of his music yeah uh, i thought he was really good in the movie scott actually i was i was his kind scenes of, with leo were like Whoa. Yeah, he goes toe to toe with DiCaprio on these scenes. He plays this guy Bill Smith, who marries two, ends up marrying two of yeah. of uh, Molly's sisters, Minnie and Rita. Yeah, um, and then you know he ends up dying because he's kind of he gets blown to come. He does. He yeah. he's a little too suspicious of what's going on. But I thought he was really good in the movie. Um, you know, we mentioned like Brendan Fraser and John Lithgow. I mean, they were fine. I mean, I don't, I don't think Brendan Fraser was like distracting from the movie in a way. A lot of people seem to think he's not he, was. The he film wasn't in the movie. Really be yeah. He's, he wasn't in the movie. Like he was in like eight minutes of the movie. Um, but then there's just like a number of random sort of character actors and stuff that, that show up along the way. Um, I'm not even sure. Sturgill Simpson. Right, Sergio Simpson, another country singer, but he's only he's in it less than um, than Jason Isbell is. He he's only in like maybe one or two scenes. Is he the is he actually? I'm I'm forgetting right now. Is he actually the guy who they hire from out of town? Is he the one who actually murders Anna? I no, but I think he's the one they go to to ask about who they should hire, and he like sends them to this person. If I'm remembering correctly, there's a lot of just there's a lot of guys in this movie. (laughs) I mean, frankly, there's mostly guys in this movie, except for the Osage, bunch of dudes for sure. But um, but yeah, no, I I don't know that there's anyone else really to call out here. But everybody's really good, you know. I think everybody um does what they're they're asked to do and. You know, all these these character actors play their part. But um, do you know that Ernest Burkhart was pardoned in 1965? Oh, my gosh. Isn't that crazy? By the president? I don't know. I was just I'm just on Ernest Burkhart's Wikipedia page. That's crazy. Kind of crazy. Isn't it? All right. The Scott, Oklahoma well, governor. Uh, 
after a rule a three two ruling in the Oklahoma Pardon and Parole Board. Crazy. Crazy indeed. All right, Scott, what is your favorite scene or moment from this movie? And why is it the scene where Robert De Niro spanks Leonardo DiCaprio? I was literally about to say, I was like, we have not talked about this scene yet because I'm keeping my powder dry. But when Mar- when Robert De Niro goes absolutely ape on Leo's ass, it was an unbelievable scene for the boys, you know? Truly out of nowhere. Yeah. I mean, yes, it, it truly was out of nowhere. They, they take him to the basement of this, like, I know it's like the social club or whatever, right? That That is the top floor, but it's like this Freemason cake. Yeah. Like, I'd imagine they have some KKK meetings down there is what I'm thinking yeah. based on the direction of this this film goes. And Byron's just sort of lurking in the corner like, a, like, like you said, the right-hand man. And... King puts Leo in his place. You know, King puts Ernest in his place and basically reminds him that if he's going to be a part of this, he needs to be a lot smarter about it. Because I believe he's beating him senseless over the blackie stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. And the fact that he did the whole car thing or whatever, where he basically like, yeah. Yeah. He reported his car stolen and and had given it to blackie or whatever. Um. Yeah, and Blackie like, ends up getting arrested before he can kill Bill right. Smith, I believe, is who they right. were trying to kill at that point. Somebody. He was trying to get yeah. someone killed, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. And I think, yeah, I mean, that was my favorite scene. Obviously, huge comic relief, played for laughs, because you have these all these mustache-twirling villains beating each other up, basically. And it was a good injection um, for the pacing, I'd say to yeah. let up because it's a three and a half hour movie. There needs to be some release. Right. Some and I think that this yeah. was a excellent example of that for, for the film. Yeah. Uh, great there's form. another great scene. form from De Niro. <laughs> there's another scene we haven't talked about Scott, which I want to mention. It's fairly early in the movie and I don't even recall at what point in the murders it is. I don't know if it's like before Anna has died or afterwards, but they have a tribal council meeting. And this is where one yeah, of the, it's after Anna. Yeah. Okay. One of the people says, I want to go to Washington. But also in this scene, one of the chiefs like gives a speech basically about what is going on uh, and, you know, what the Osage people are experiencing and how they need to respond. And it is incredibly powerful, um, yeah. everything that he has to say. And I actually, so I, I was listening to Scorsese doing an interview and he said that that was completely improv pretty much. They just, he, they weren't wow. even shooting and they were just, but they were like in the tent, I guess, preparing for that scene or whatever. And this guy just like the, the two guys actually who were there, they both just kind of started talking and, you know, Scorsese ends up hearing it and he's like, turn the camera on. Like, yeah. we need to get this. That's and crazy. it ends up, you know, being this incredibly powerful scene in the movie, like the, the pain and everything that he is going like, you know, that you can hear in his voice and just the, the articulate way that he describes, you know, the suffering that they're going through is it really sat with me. And in the moment I was kind of like spellbound by that scene and by the performance of that guy. And I apologize that I don't know what his name is, but um, you know, one of the native American actors in the movie, um, you know, and it, it does make sense when I hear after the movie, actually, that it was improv because it's like it feels like one of those things you can't just you can't even manufacture that really like that just it just came out of him. 
um, you know, probably in reckoning with everything uh, that happened to the Osage people while making this film. So I had to mention that scene. Yeah, I think it, I think it was probably going to be either. I think it might have been Yancey Redcorn who's billed as the chief. Or <laughs> that's, that's there's another right. person who's billed as the traditional leader, who which is Tally Redcorn. So they're I assume they're related. So those were I mean, that, those I'm sure they were the two guys who were sitting there. And that's yeah. So. Yeah. Um, all right, Scott, let's put a score on it out of 10. Killers of the Flower Man. 9.2. I'm going with a 10. I am. Uh, I mean, it, it may not be perfect, but it's the best thing I've seen all year. I think, I think I do put it as my number one could, could change. Um, and yeah. obviously there's still a lot to come. Whenever you but... finally see Oppenheimer, it might change. We got, yeah, help. it might, it very well might. Uh, when I see Hitman, when I see, um, you know, a, a bunch of, I, I'm going to be honest with you, Scott, just hearing things about it and more as more people are seeing it and you saw it and Paul's seen it now, I think perfect days could end up being one of my favorite movies of the year. Sure. Um, just from what I've heard about it and what it seems like it is. But anyway, it's a vibes movie. Hopefully we'll talk about that at some point in the future. I'd love to. Uh, I mean, I yeah. love perfect days. I don't know. I guess I never, I don't know if I, did I ever talk about perfect days on the podcast? Sure I, can't, I can't remember yeah. if I, yeah, no, I guess I wouldn't have because we didn't record an episode because that was the weekend we had we were at the wedding. But yeah, I mean, Perfect Days sure, yeah. ended up being one of my favorite movies at the New York Film Festival. And I wasn't even sure I was going to be able to make it to see it. So it was so amazing that I I was able to see it. And it was my third favorite movie of the festival out of the yeah. you know, 19, 18, 19 movies that I saw. I'm really excited about it. Actually, we just recorded a Miyazaki episode and I mentioned Paris, Texas, which is another one of Vim Vendor's films, of course, which is one of my sure. favorite movies of all time. So I'm very much looking forward to to this one. So yeah, I mean, a anyway. lot, lot of heat left in the year. I've seen some stuff. Um, but, yeah, you no, know, there's still Boy in the Heron. There's there's so many things left for you to still see. The and, you know, there's there's a handful for for me as well that haven't seen yet. So you know, Maestro, which was still in my anticipated list. The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. Yeah, all two hours and forty plus minutes of it. Which we someone someone it. told me it was two fifty last week. And I know I was, I was messaging you about this, but I mean that nearly. I mean I was floored. I was like, "You got to be kidding me!" A one sixty pluser baby. And this person was like, "I'm about to bang out all the Hunger Games movies and prep for this. I've never seen them before." I'm like, "Brother, you don't need to do that. Stand down. Don't waste like, your time." Is like, it, yeah, it's a pretty. I like Jennifer Lawrence as much as I mean, huge Jennifer Lawrence fan. Watch the first Hunger Games movie, but brother, you do not need to bang out the four Hunger Games movies so you can watch. Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes. You don't need to do that. It's I can cool assure idea. you right now, you don't need to do that. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure how we got there, but uh, anyway, we're going to take a short break now and reset, perhaps. Um, and when we come back, um, we have a few news items to uh, discuss, including some big movies getting their release dates moved to 2025. Um, and also, I'm going to be talking about an unexpected sequel announcement for one of my favorite movies of all time. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to this episode of Some Like It, Scott. 
Scott, before the break, I teased a couple of news items that we were going to discuss. I'm going to throw it to you first. Uh, you wanted to talk about a couple of release dates that have been moved back to our great chagrin. Uh, but this is still, of course, in light of the Screen Actors uh, strike that is still going on. Mm -hmm. um, and that is continuing to affect movies, although the, the writer strike has been um, has been resolved. The uh, actor strike still goes on and and there seems to be no end in sight. And now well, we have a couple more casualties. I think there is, there, think there is an end in sight. Uh, luckily, it sounds like there are there has been progress recently, w whether that means the strike is going to be over this week or in a month. It's unclear, but it does seem like yeah. the studios and SAG are making progress. But again, un unclear how how close I think there was a point over the weekend where people were like, it's all but a done deal, like the things all but signed on the on the side. But then it seems like it's lingering a little bit longer. So that might have been yeah. a bit a bit early, too early to call that. So progress is being made, but not quickly enough to save the release dates of certain films. No, notably, the, this these are going to mostly be about Disney Disney backed films because they are the studio who has moved first here into further delaying films. But notably, uh, the Hunger Games prequel, The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, w was recently the large, like the highest budget movie to actually get a waiver. So. I guess Rachel Ziegler and whoever else is in that cast. I think it's like a bunch of people who like aren't super famous. I think, I think Rachel Ziegler is like maybe the, one of the biggest names in the cast. I guess Hunter Schaefer uh, is, it. I was going to say, I know there's another young person that, yeah. Hunter yeah. Schaefer. I think Viola I think Davis. Yeah. Name. Viola Davis, Peter Dinklage. Okay. So there's, I guess the cast is a lot bigger, but I, I always just have, have uh, associated Rachel Ziegler because I think she's like one of the one of the lead characters in it. But yeah, so yeah, she's the so, lead, yeah. so the cast is a little bit bigger to be fair. But it did just recently secure a a waiver, so the actors and actresses in this film will be able to promote the movie, which I think is a big deal for a Hunger Games prequel. Although I say that, and I'm not really compelled to think that many of these people will actually drive and convince moviegoers to go see this movie maybe i'm underrating rachel ziegler but it feels like she's upset more people recently than she's i don't know like influenced in, in a positive way I, I don't really have an opinion about all the snow white stuff we were actually i think texting about it last week but mm -hmm. you know she's not she hasn't had a great year i think it's fair to say with shazam fury of the gods being an absolutely doa film and now this but it is related, actually, I guess, to go back to the original point of the story. Snow White, as as just referenced, is one of those films that it appears has been moved significantly back, partly because I suppose the film is not done yet. I don't actually know that, that much about the production of, of the film. Maybe they're still doing reshoots or things like that. But it is not finished. So rather than delay it into the summer or later into the fall, Disney has decided to delay the film an entire year. So from March 22nd uh, of this coming year, 2024, all the way to March 21st, 2025. That's obviously a really dramatic uh, release date change. Disney did a couple of these because in addition to that, and we can pause here in a second and talk about that movie. But in addition to that, Elio, which is was supposed to be Pixar's next film, uh, original IP, of course, a new original concept and idea. That was supposed to come out, I think, two or three weeks before snow white uh, in the beginning of march next year now has a summer release date in 2025 they 
did not notably did not move the sequel to inside out inside out Two that still holds its release date in the summer of next year but disney does sort of push back those two pretty big movies for them i mean obviously much was talked about and and we reviewed it on the podcast about elemental earlier this year i think people were very quick to write an obituary for for that movie and for pixar after but low-key has become one of the highest grossing films of the year i'm not going to sit here and say it blew disney and pixar's expectations out of the water because it was very slow to start but elemental did end up making about 500 million at the box office worldwide which i think ended up I think all for all things considered is a pretty big success for Pixar and for Disney. So I think with that in mind and, and sort of how they've had to cautiously, I think, approach Pixar's original IP, they've made the decision to delay that movie a full year, give the creative team enough time to refine it and potentially make changes. It sounds like if they're delaying it that long, especially since I don't know how much the strikes really would have affected a movie like Elio. I mean, obviously the voice acting work. I'd imagine can't get done. I assume that falls under the same uh, union negotiation as the rest of the acting strikes, but I'm not hundred percent sure about that, but they've delayed that a whole year to give it time to fully cook in the oven to fully bake. And there's that. I think the only other thing of note from Disney here, and then let's, I'll get your thoughts, Scott, is that unsurprisingly, and I'd imagine very unrelated to the strikes magazine dreams was taken completely off the release schedule for this December. That is the Sundance uh, debut Jonathan Majors sort of vehicle that I think was was sort of touted as a potential best actor nomination for him. Obviously, then everything else that happened to Jonathan Major this year occurred, and he's currently uh, continuing to going through court proceedings on his domestic violence case in the state of New York. So, yeah, unclear if that movie just goes to VOD or actually ever comes out in theaters. Um, but Scott, what did you think about these sort of latest delays? Right now, Poor Things is still on track for its early December release date. That would be like the other big star-driven Disney film still to come this year, besides obviously the Marvel movie that's coming out in a week. But thoughts on these big moves for Elio and Snow White? Yeah, I mean, you know, I I, I wasn't too moved by the Elio news. Um uh-huh. Because, you know, there's, we're still going to get a Pixar film next year, it seems. We're still going to get Inside Out 2, as you alluded to. Um, you know, I enjoy most of the Pixar movies, but it's sure. not something that I necessarily, you know, look forward to every single year. Um, so it's just, you know, it is what it is. Snow White, you know, there's been a lot of ado made about this movie. And, you know, all the various elements, whether it's the Rachel Zegler stuff that you talked about, whether it's just the presence of Gal Gadot being in the film, uh, which seems to just incite discussion nowadays. Um, But I was still somewhat looking forward to the movie. I mean, more so than most Disney live action remakes. Uh, The main reason being, of course, that Greta Gerwig uh, wrote the screenplay for the film. Um, And I am a fan of Rachel Zegler as well. I mean, I enjoyed her a lot in West Side Story. I I love her singing voice. Um, and so you don't love um, her normal voice, but you love her singing voice. Yeah, I'm just kidding. No, but, uh, and so I, you know, I was looking forward to seeing her sing the songs. Mm -hmm. Um, so we'll have to wait on that. You know, I'm not crushed or devastated or anything like that, but, um, you know, as far as Disney live action remakes go, you know, I'm of course interested to see 
anything that Greta Gerwig has her name attached to. And, uh, sure. you know, just kind of move going on from Barbie, just kind of, you know, seeing what kind of um, stuff that she's going to be able to do with these big tentpole movies, you know, operating under the, the control of a major studio um, and with some pretty big source material here, obviously, to work with. And again, a lot of talk about how that source material may or may not be updated for um, the, you know, 21st century, which is a lot of what incited all of the the backlash towards Rachel Zegler for some of her, you know, comments about that. But um, anyway, yeah, I mean, you know, th- these are certainly not the worst casualties of uh, the strike so far, but, um, you know, it is disheartening to see uh, that this is going to continue to happen until some sort of resolution is is reached. Yeah, I think the the one of the things as well is for me, I, I mentioned poor things still holding its release date. But one of the other things that I meant to bring up is the bike riders, which had yes. a December 1st release date, I believe, was taken off the calendar, I believe, without a new release date, which is kind of like a little bit disturbing. Part of that, of course, is because the Beyonce concert film comes out that week. and I don't think Disney wanted to open the film next to it. But at the same time, it's like, I mean, this film's like been at the festivals this year. Like, you, yeah. when are you releasing this thing? <laughs> like, yeah, are you, like are you really going to hold it? until next year now maybe they do the stunt where they they make sure it's in new york and la whatever is required to actually qualify for oscars these days and then they hold the wide release for like january or february because that is a big star driven i mean that cast is stacked I mean, the cast is pretty yeah. deep and i think you're going to want someone like austin especially austin butler i'd imagine promoting the film and i think jody comer is in that one as well with tom, tom hardy, hardy and yeah and there's a obviously a very deep ensemble cast list but those are like the names you'd want promoting this film because ultimately Who's the director? It's it's is it it's Jeff Nichols, Jeff yeah, Nichols, director yeah. of Mud and exactly Take Shelter like, and yeah, you know, no, notable director, but not someone who's like a name brand, like even you know, like a Scorsese, if, just to reference the movie we're talking about on the podcast this week, or even Yorgos Lanthimos, right? Who for Poor Things, who I'd argue mm-hmm. is probably more famous just because he had so much attention for the favorite, you know, four or five years ago now. But yeah, very weird that they removed it completely from the calendar without a new release date. Maybe they're just waiting to see when the strike gets resolved to make sure that it gets released. Like say, rather than releasing it December 15th, if, if they're going to be able to get their sort of ducks in a row for a Christmas release date, then that's what they're going to want to do. Although Christmas is very crowded this year between the color purple and Aquaman and all other sorts of fare that I think would gobble up the energy of who might people but maybe those audiences are different for the bike riders. I don't know. But all that's to say, things feel a little chaotic right now. This is obviously just the Disney slate. Warner Brothers did delay their like Robert De Niro gangster movie called Alto Nights. Um, but they haven't moved anything else of note. Like they haven't moved The Color Purple or Wonka or uh, or Aquaman, of course. Like Those are all films that still are going to be coming out before the end of the year, specifically at the end of December. They're really stacking those movies on top of each other. So it'll be interesting to see if those films hold. It Like feels kind of too late to delay things at this point, but I wonder if it is. But we'll see. I, uh, I'm kind of surprised that all those release dates held. Like I'm surprised some of them didn't move. But maybe they still could. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you know, hopefully, again, the the 
um, resolution comes soon, like you're talking about, and the yeah, comments I, that we're I, seeing about progress yeah. being made. I mean, I think the hope is that, like, or I don't even know if hope is the right word to describe this, but I think the notion is that, like, if this thing can't get done before Thanksgiving, then it's probably not going to get done this year. And that I think that would be a even if ultimately it's not a huge difference getting something done before Thanksgiving versus like the first week in January, just because so many of those days are are holidays and and not actual production days in in the in the industry. I think it'd just be a, like a really big psychological blow to not have the strikes done going into the new year. And yeah, we'll see what happens. But that I think that would be really harmful to the industry. Yeah, I agree. Um, and the bike riders is one that I am more disappointed about because um, I was really looking forward to that movie in the cast. Yeah, I mean, the movie looks sick. It looks absolutely sick. Yeah, um, and unfortunately, I'm. I had mentioned to you, Scott, that I'm I'm going to Austin for business in the latter part of this week, and actually, the Austin Film Festival is going on, and tomorrow night. That's what I was saying. You, you should have changed yeah, your flight. I'm not going to be. Should have flown earlier. Should have gotten yeah. there in time. Are you accounting for the time change? Uh, yes, I am. Okay. Damn. Yeah. What because it has me landing at like 640 Austin time and then the movie starts at seven. So there's, there's just no way. Um, bummer. anyway, Scott, I wanted to discuss, um, the, uh, suddenly announced sequel to one of my favorite films of all time was what I teased. Um, that film is David Robert Mitchell's 2014, uh, 2015 horror, um, film, it follows um, David Robert Mitchell, of course, um, sort of an indie director, really had a breakthrough with this movie. He ended up making Under the Silver Lake uh, a few years later, a very divisive movie that had a you know long and complicated release history as well. Yeah, and got put into the movie doghouse for it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it seemed uh, like, yeah, he got put into the doghouse as well, David Robert Mitchell. And, you know, there, there were some talks about he was going to make some original superhero movie, but that seemed to have kind of fallen fallen through. Or at least um, hasn't been cast yet. Like, I don't even know if that movie ever yeah. casted up or anything. So We haven't really heard much about it in a, in a while. Um, but out of nowhere, seemingly, uh, just earlier this week, the, the news was announced that there's going to be a sequel to It Follows. It's going to start filming next year, and it is going to have the title they follow they follow kind of you know right down the middle i guess what you'd expect for the title there but the other news coming out of this is micah monroe um the star of it follows is uh going to return as well for the sequel so she is somebody who when i saw it follows all those years ago i thought you know had a chance to to really break out um and hasn't really done so you know she's had some some smaller roles she's she's you know led some indie films you know she's kind of like a in the scream queen thriller type um genre of course we talked about washer last year which was a film that i actually liked a lot but a few other movies um that she has popped up in but nothing major certainly um so this could be you know a big thing come to come along for her too because uh, it follows you know a very well regarded movie that i think has you know continued to to receive acclaim and, and recognition um even you know, nowadays and, and maybe has even grown since it has released. But it's one of my favorite movies of all time. I'll never forget seeing it for the first time. It's a horror uh, classic to me, modern classic, certainly. Um, and while like not immediately like, oh, yeah, they need to make a sequel to this. Um, I can I can see it right because the movie spoilers, you know, the movie ends up and uh, there is some suggestion in the final scene uh, involving 
um, Michael Monroe and Keir Gilchrist's character as they're walking, that they are still being followed. Um, and, you know, there is um, a thematic significance, I think, that makes it so, to, to that, that makes it such that, you know, you could have just said it's a, it's a standalone movie and it still makes sense as the ending, even though they're still being followed. But, you know, if you want to look at that movie and say, well, how can they do a sequel? You can definitely look at that last scene there and say, hey, yeah, well, this is probably going to pick back up with Jay, uh, which is the Micah Monroe character. And, um, you know, maybe she now has to help somebody deal with the, somebody else deal with the, the demon. Of course, the concept of the movie being that um, when you have sex with someone, that then this demon starts pursuing you, but it takes the form, it can take any sort of form. It's a shapeshifter, right? It can, it can look like any sort of person. And so it adds a lot of suspense and tension. But, you know, I'm excited that it's a sequel to It Follows. Again, that's one of my favorite movies. I'm even more excited that David Robert Mitchell is just being able to make another movie because I loved Under the Silver Lake. I was one of those people. Um, and I think he... You he were a, you were one of those people. <laughs> I was. He has such a cool style, and you know his collaboration with Mike Jalakas, who he usually works with, cinematographer and uh, disaster piece, who he usually works with on the music. The three of them, like I think, they work together so well, and his movies are always so technically um, mesmerizing. I just again, I love his visual style as well. So I'm all on board for this. Uh, this is a, a sequel announcement. One of the few sequel announcements that I can actually get behind. Um, so they follow Scott. You you excited? I know you have seen it. Follows as well. Yeah, obviously it follows is not as you know sort of in my top movies of all time as it is for you. I enjoyed it quite a bit. I'm I, I thought that you'd be a little bit more conflicted, honestly, about a sequel to the movie just because the i the ification of of the things that are sacred to us feels like a a real. Yeah. Uh, disappointment and this yeah this was an indie success i mean this was an indie success right this was made for a very small amount of money and it made quite a bit at at the box office and it kind of feels like they're just trying to do the same thing that every other i mean i know this is neon right but it feels like they're trying to do the same thing that every major studio especially something like universe like universal right who's found a lot of success in horror and horror sequels has been trying to do unlike I'm not saying A24 hasn't ever tried to make a sequel. I'm not sure if they have or not, to be honest. But it kind of feels like this is taking a more like major studio approach of like, a, we're going to make a sequel to Megan or yeah. Talk to Me or Black Phone or X and that. Pearl or, you know, maybe the closest. Yeah, that no, that's true. Has. Yeah. I mean, definitely but, sequels yeah. and stuff. But no, yeah. I hear you. You know, again, I hear you that. Um, you know, this, there, there may be some cause for concern, but, you know, I trust Neon. I do. Um, I, they have the right people involved again. They have to. Well, I, I don't, so I guess out of curiosity, that. why, why do you trust Neon? Cause they don't, they're not typically people who are, produ- who are like actually producing movies. They're typically buying finished products and they obviously have a very, a good eye for purchasing films that are relevant and, and work really well. But I don't know how much experience I could be wrong with this, but I don't think they have that much experience actually producing movies. But like you say, when they put their stamp on something, it usually, you know, ends up being good. And I, and you know, my concern with the IPification is more just the idea that, um, you know, they're just going to take all the soul out of these movies and just churn them out for you know mm-hmm. money and just so they can make another one. Um, and 
I guess I don't see that as really being the case here, right? Like that, that movie came out a long time ago, It Follows. And yes, people still talk about it, uh, but it doesn't feel to me like it's some sort of cheap cash grab, right? Like I feel like the, uh, you know, you got David Robert Mitchell back, you got Micah Monroe back. Neon has attached themselves to it, right? So it's not like, again, they're not selling out to some, you know, big studio, really. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think there's still a lot of reasons to be excited. Though, of course, with any sequel, there is, you know, the the concern that I talked about, like with Across the Spider-Verse, for example, of like, well, aren't we just making this to set up the next one? And then after that, we're going to set up the next one and then have a spinoff and a TV series and all that. I don't know if they're going to do that with that follows. I, I just don't think I can see that. Happen. Well, what's really interesting, actually, because I just went onto its onto its like Wikipedia page and I just saw that uh, the film, the original. So the first movie, It Follows, was distributed by a small studio called radius uh which is a subsidiary of the wines of the weinstein company back in the day and tom quinn who is the founder of neon was the person who ran that's that like subsidiary studio so it actually would make it actually makes sense that neon also is is doing the sequel because tom quinn was the person who i assume like greenlit the purchase of it follows originally yeah. for distribution so that actually makes me feel a little bit better about the whole thing but I'm curious if this is driven by David Robert Mitchell and if to the extent that Micah Monroe is involved in the creative process, I don't know whether she is or not. I think, it, I think it's just a David Robert Mitchell joint, but if, if he has like a big meaningful idea that he wants to go after, which is totally possible that, that he would, but I wonder it or, or if it's more driven by the fact that like he can't get a movie funded, frankly, right now. Yeah, um, like 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 we were sort of both saying, like he's kind of been in the doghouse a little bit. And that's a good point. Yeah, I wonder if it's more just like this is what I have to do to get a movie made or if it's I really do have an idea and I want to explore this. And it, and it can be a little bit of both. Right. Like it doesn't yeah. have to be one or the other. It can be a little column, a, a little column B. That's often the reality that we that we deal with. No, you're right. Because you know he's he he could very well be doing this as sort of making a one for you, right? Because his one for him backfired, you know, significantly yeah. on him. To I mean, he got it made, um, but at great cost. It seems yes, like to his ability to make cost. future films. <laughs> but I love the movie, David. I know you're listening, and uh, yeah. I'm a fan. Keep keep cooking. Just join the Patreon. There you go. They follow. <laughs> All right, Scott, uh, that should just about do it for this episode of Some Like It. Scott, where can our listeners find you on social media? At Shelton2013. And I am at Scarvy Dent on all platforms. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the podcast. If you have and you'd like to support us, don't forget about our Patreon page at patreon.com slash mediaplugpods. Lots of tiers over there. Uh, but even if you can't support us at Patreon, don't forget to rate, review, subscribe, like, do all of the things that you do on your preferred podcast app. And of course, we hope you'll be back for our next episode of the podcast on which we'll be reviewing Justine Triette's Palme d'Or winning drama from France, Anatomy of a Fall. But until then, for Scott Shelton, I'm Scott Harvey. We'll see you down the road.